Welcome to Brand Story Inc. I'm your host, Jay Sharman. Every week we sit down with smart folks to talk about innovative ways they are creating content to connect with their audiences. I'd like to say every company can be a media company, and this conversation hopefully helps you understand why. Joining us today on Brand Story Inc. is Sarah Fisher, Axios's media reporter and the author of perhaps the most influential newsletter, Axios Media Trends, which you can su- subscribe to at axios.com backslash newsletters. Uh, prior to Sarah's nearly four years at Axios, she cut her teeth in the media publishing business at the likes of Politico, CNN, New York Times, and Washington Post, in a myriad of positions ranging from reporter to business development, executive, and producer. So Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You know, I think one of the things that you know is I've been a bit professionally stockish in my quest to get you on as a guest. I think we're nine months into this, and each week I ask our guests to fess up on their morning musts, uh, kind of the secrets of their email inbox and social media followers as to how they stay on top of industry news, and the name Sarah Fisher is number one by quite a margin. So let's start there. I'd love to share the origin story and the evolution of Axios Media Trends. Well, sure thing. Um, And thank you for saying that. We launched Axios in January of 2017. I came on board in 2016, so about four years ago. And we knew that we wanted to cover the intersection of a lot of important topics. So that included media, but also politics, technology, science, healthcare, you name it. And we, I was hired as a media reporter. We knew we wanted to do a newsletter. And the key differentiator between my coverage and what was out there was we wanted this to be a resource for uh, professionals, people who mm-hmm. are in the industry and need this coverage to do their jobs better. So because of that, you'll see we don't do a lot of content reviews. I'm not going to do a review of the latest episode of Game of Thrones uh, and stuff <laughs> like that, because that's more of a consumer facing thing. We don't do a lot of gossip columnist type stuff. So hires and fires or you know, this person was spotted eating out uh, with this high level person. I mean, if there's a major turnover of a CEO level, sure, we'll cover right. that. But we try to keep it really business focused so that people can do their jobs better. Well, I mean, we're going to jump into a whole bunch of relevant media trends for content studio execs on this podcast, including some stats and facts on areas of media spending, some insights from Sarah from media companies and brands on branded content, some straight talk on connected TT, connected TV and OTT, along with a host of other things. But first, you know, you were kind of a big deal in our industry before, but in the last week, well, um, you know, we got to talk Room Raider, which gave you a 10 out of 10 for your on-camera look to your room on Zoom. I'd never heard of Room Raider, admittedly. And uh, they did a screen grab of you, which I'll, we'll post on, a, on, the, uh, on the Teamworks blog here so people can see it. And I think you said moving on up. And, and they wrote, the pillow ties the room together, nailed the lighting. That art piece really is music. 10 out of 10 at Sarah Fisher, which is, by the way, at S-A-R-A-F-I-S-C-H-E-R. Uh, Sarah, I got to ask you because there were like dozens of comments about your wall art and <laughs> which is, I, I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's like sheet music, right? That's kind of collaged together. Uh, mm-hmm. Did you get, did you just get a ton of feedback on this Room Raider thing? <laughs> Yeah, like my friends and family thought it was kind of funny. I mean, the one thing that could be interesting to your audience about the Room Raider thing is that when I do TV or videos, normally I go to a studio and all I really have to worry about is knowing my topic. Right. And what's different about the pandemic era is I am focused on everything but my topic. I'm like, okay, (laughs) is my wiring set up? Is my ethernet 
connected into my uh, internet box? Is the cord showing? Is my apartment clean? Did I leave any socks hanging around? Did I do my own hair and makeup well? Like these are all things that I now have to consider. And so it actually, it's a challenge. You would think that people would be much more open to doing television and doing video hits because it's, oh, the convenience of your home. But actually, in some ways, it's a lot more of a burden because we have to worry about all of these things that when I go to a studio, right. I never had to worry about. Yeah, and who knew? You you're, you could probably get good commission for selling the, the sheet music that you have on your wall. <laughs> so, Well, jumping back in, uh, in mid-August of 2020, you shared a pretty sobering chart of the coronavirus impact on all types of media spend. And the headline went to Out of Home and Billboards, which were down just about a hair under 20%. Uh, this was from December of 2019 to June 2020. But everything looked pretty much the opposite of the NASDAQ. All media was down 10.3%. Digital social was down 9.3%. You get you get the gist. The best performer, I think, uh, on your that you had in your chart was digital video, which was only down 3.4%. So help us make sense of these numbers. Which ones are you betting on to recover quicker than others? Uh, which ones have a longer road to recovery? What's your take? Yes. Yeah, so the reason I highlighted out of home, which is, as you mentioned, billboards, but also things like subway posters, yep. et cetera, is because before the coronavirus, that was the only traditional advertising medium that was still growing hmm. and doing quite well. And the reason it was growing is because in a world where there's everything is going digital, viewability is a problem, meaning anyone can just put up an ad blocker and you don't know that your ad's going to actually be seen by human eyeballs. Mm -hmm. And measurement is really difficult. But with billboards, it's really hard to just X out of the billboard if you're driving past it. You still have to look at it. And so they're still considered a really effective medium. The other aspect about out of home, the reason it was growing is because it was digitizing. You're going to see a lot more right. billboards and subway posters that are going digital, but they're really innovating. Oftentimes, if you go into a subway and you see a digital billboard, it won't even have an ad on it. Sometimes it'll have the scores to the local sports team. Mm -hmm. And that's that's done because it wants to engage you. So it is notable that it's considered now the medium that's predicted to drop the most in the pandemic because it was doing so well. And the reason it's going to drop the most is because it's tied really heavily to transit. As yeah. I mentioned, things like subway posters and driving and transit is down people are traveling less during the virus, but also it's tied really heavily to sports. A lot of the biggest billboards are um, posters and billboards on your way into big sports stadiums mm -hmm. or they're outside the stadiums. And right now we aren't going to those stadiums. So that is a medium that's really struggling, but it's also a medium that's expected to recover quickly because it was doing well before the virus. It's expected to do well once we start opening things back up. The mediums that I'm worried about are the ones that were struggling before the virus. So that's things like traditional TV and radio. Mm -hmm. The virus has kind of dealt a death blow to those mediums, um, and they're not expected to recover as quickly. Cool. Thanks for that insight. Yeah, it's funny when you talk about auto home and billboard. You know, there was a ton. There is there is a quite a bit of ton innovation, right? Uh, you're in DC. We're here in Chicago, and even things like bus stops, right? We're becoming pretty pretty interesting and pretty sophisticated on what they were doing and you know i hope you're right um i i just have fears it's just the, the chicago as as we were in late august is still a little bit of a ghost town from a work perspective it seems to be kicking back in from a social perspective a little bit but um 
definitely scary times for the crystal ball. So you've got the you've got the ears and attention of content studio execs right now on this podcast. And so whether they're running brand studios or media publisher content studios or even a third party agency, if you're sitting across from them, what are the top concerns that you have for them right now? I think one advertising as a medium which touches those industries, whether it's marketers or publishers it traditionally grows at the same rate as the GDP. And so because of the slowed virus recovery, I wouldn't expect there to be a sharp um, sort of like U-like recovery uh, for the advertising sector. In the beginning of the virus, we thought that was going to happen. We, mm-hmm. I talked to analysts who said, well, when things start opening up, we think that things uh, are going to come back. And I now you hear financial um, forecast that we could be looking at something that's more like a Nike swoosh mm-hmm. where it takes a really long time to recover or even something like a W where we bounce back and then we head into another recession if there's a virus uh, part two. So I think the biggest concern is that the economy doesn't recover as fast as we had potentially anticipated in March and that impacts the advertising sector, um, which you know obviously is keeping a lot of these media and publishing businesses afloat but also it impacts the consumer dollar. And mm-hmm. a lot of publishing businesses are really reliant on things like consumer subscriptions right now. Um, so I'd say that's sort of the biggest fear looking ahead. And so no, if that is to be true, right? So if it goes the Nike swoosh, where would you advise these folks to direct their focus right now? Can't control the economy coming back, right? Everyone's gonna be fighting for the more limited dollars, right? And brand spend is gonna go down or stay down. Uh, where would you direct content studio execs focus? Well, I mean, I hate to be the Debbie Downer, but cutting costs is Mm -hmm. the number one thing I would say. And we've seen a lot of content studios start to lay people off. We've seen some of them start to merge or do acquisitions so that they can share resources, especially in technology with other studios and maximize efficiencies. Um, The other area I would say in terms of where you could cut costs without necessarily having to cut people is thinking about more innovative ways to do storytelling with less. Mm-hmm. You're starting to see um, some brands uh, re-upping old commercial ideas and making them new. What pre-existing assets can I use to spin it into something new? Um, these are all questions that content studios are going to have to start to ask themselves because being really mindful of your spend is the best way to survive this moment. Yeah, it's interesting. Early on in the pandemic, I was talking with folks, you know, content studio folks. And, and I think one of the things that we were talking about is like, there seemed to be this lag. I'd love for you to kind of react to this. And by that, I mean, yes, uh, most people understand and experience content in a, uh, in a digital format, especially if you're under the age of 50, right? Like you're doing it all the time on your phone, et cetera. But yet when you follow the money, there is still this like TV is king and this like I hate to say it, but old school approach to kind of media spending. And I've been asking a lot of folks and what I've heard from some of the major media company executives that I've talked to is that they felt that this is kind of a tipping point that because folks are on Zoom, they're working out of their you know bedrooms and, and tied to their computer all day, that, that these more traditional television centric um, large media companies have been forced to be like, aha, okay. Like, yes, I'm experiencing and understanding the value of digital now because I, I feel like I, I, it's crazy to even talk about this in 2020 with all of us on Twitter and living on our cell phones. But I'm curious if you've seen 
do you feel that this has been a tipping point of some sorts for digital? I know spending has been there already, but just in general more, I, I guess, kind of the psychology of the C-suite. Yeah, I think I think the people have understood the value because the numbers um, show that that's where the eyeballs are. I think the problem has been that we haven't had a good system for measurement and attribution on the monetization side of digital advertising, mm -hmm. which makes brand marketers hesitant to buy um, and spend as much advertising dollars there. That's been the huge problem is if you are a Procter & Gamble, you know what a Nielsen rating is. You mm -hmm. know how to measure the effectiveness of a television ad. Everywhere else that you spend your money, you are trying to piece together a storyline as to how much to attribute that dollar spent on digital to your bottom line. And some platforms, it's gotten really effective and easy. I think Google and Facebook um, are really effective advertising platforms, although they come with their um, own struggles. But if you think about connected TV, I mean, we're still so in such early phases of it that it's kind of hard, I think, for them to measure outcomes. And that's why you've uh -huh. seen them take a, lot, a little bit more time to invest their dollars there. But to your point of this being a transformational moment, I think a lot of brands are willing now to take more of a risk because they recognize that we're not going to be able to put the toothpaste back into the tube. Mm -hmm. We're now fully at the point where more people are probably streaming um, certain shows or certain uh, genres at least than they are watching on live TV. We know that's the case for things like dramas. And so if you want to have your content adjacent to those genres, like you're gonna have to experiment with streaming. And I think that's gonna force the industry to come up with more uniform ways of measuring the effectiveness of those digital channels. And I'm, I'm planning, I'm writing a piece on that in the near future, but there's a lot of things that people are starting to toy around with. Well, well, let's go there. I mean, since you went there, kind of the OTT and connected TV space, how do you assess where we are in the big picture of the streaming wars right now? And what do you foresee in the next six to 12 months? Yeah, well, 75% of US homes have at least one smart television. So, 75% of U.S. television households um, are able to watch some sort of streaming app, et cetera. Uh, it doesn't mean that all of them are using it and doesn't mean that all of them are using it a lot, but mm -hmm. I think that's a pretty high penetration level. And part of the reason is because smart TVs just got so cheap right. in recent years. Television production just got so cheap that people were swapping out their old stuff for things that were capable of being connected to the internet. I think in terms of the adoption of streaming, we saw this lag before the pandemic that people really weren't giving up their cable packages fully because you don't get sports for the most part on streaming packages. Mm -hmm. And for people who love live sports, it still makes sense to pay for a cable package. But then the pandemic happened and suddenly there were no more live sports. And so it made sense if you wanted to explore more streaming shows and more streaming packages because you weren't going to be as reliant on your cable sports packages for your entertainment. Uh, so I think that's where the, 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 the lack of sports over the pandemic is definitely going to help out the case for streaming TV and connected TV on the consumer side. Um, the worry of course though, is we don't just don't have a lot of content right now. I mean, there's a lot of production is on Holt. So yeah. it, that's, that's also the case though for both live cable networks and broadcast networks as it is for streaming. Um, 
But I also think that you're starting to hear more conversations about big tech investing in sports rights mm-hmm. because they're going to come out of this pandemic with really nice uh, cash flow. They're all doing great. Yep. Whereas some of the networks, especially the ones that are tied to like parks and cinema that have uh, lost a bunch of their free cash flow, they might not be in as big of a position to be spending billions of dollars in sports rights. So if it becomes the case because of this pandemic that we start to see maybe you know a few more NFL games going to uh, streaming platforms or a few more basketball games, that's going to make a huge difference in the migration of people over from regular TV to streaming. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's I think it's been one of the misnomers, right? Like uh, I run a content agency, Teamworks Media, and a lot of people are like, oh, wow, you guys must be doing great content, right? Content's booming. It's like yeah, content if you have a large library, right? Like Disney Plus could not have come out at a better time, right? Like just some of these, um, you know, Peacock and and. When I when I zoom out and I look at the the macro of the the amount of competitors there are in the OTT and connected TV space, it's crazy because it's it's there's so many of them and a good portion of them are really hard to differentiate from one another, right? In terms of even figuring out who has what, and so to that end, in terms of where we are, which I think you mentioned the early stage of this entire transformation even though it feels like we've been talking, people like you and me have been talking about it for years and years, how should media publishers and brands be thinking about the myriad of opportunities that the OTT and connected TV space afford going forward? Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, it's unrealistic to think we're going to be able to have this many channels and consumers aren't going to be overwhelmed. So there's going to be consolidation. And what we've seen is that a lot of the standalone SVODs, so the subscription video on demand services, Mm -hmm. are recognizing that there's a big pool of cash out there that they could also take in if they start to think about advertising-based video on demand. So notice that Comcast um, has acquired Zumo, for example, a free ad-supported video platform. Um, Viacom acquired Pluto TV. Um, Fox acquired Tubi. So I think that's uh, one thing we're going to expect to see is more consolidation so that consumers can go to one studio or one network and get a package that includes content from all these, you know, some of it's free, some of it's not, uh, but it's all one space. I think so that that's part of the future. And then the other thing is you're going to see a lot more of these like split rights deals. So an example of that is obviously the last dance ESPN plus it's streaming service is going to have the rights to that. But then Netflix also gets the international rights to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You see examples where, one studio might get access to a film or to a series for two years, and then they license it out to another studio uh, to make money off of it two years later. I think just like the dividing of rights amongst these different services is going to become a little bit more uh, commonplace. Very cool. I'm I'm kind of being unfair to you, Sarah, because I, I feel like I'm giving multi-day conference subjects in like one question here. So moving on to kind of the state of social media platforms, I think Facebook and Instagram continue to liberally borrow, I'm being nice, features from emerging players like Hello TikTok and and Reels. And media publishers are frustrated at just about every platform and add some recent controversy around Apple News to the fray. Where are we in the content studio efforts to get brands and media publishers stories to the right eyeballs? through these walled gardens? What's your take on where we are? 
I think a lot of publishers, news publishers at least, yep. have given up on the idea that they can expect consistent monetization from some of these platforms. Some of them, I think we know we're going to get a consistent relationship with over time. I think Twitter has been really good about having an ad revenue share partnership with certain publishers that has been sustainable and consistent. Obviously, Facebook, I think people have felt that that's been less consistent, although now they're paying publishers to be in their news tab. So I think news publishers at least are like, all right, well, we could never rely on these platforms fully. And that's why you see so many of them developing their own distribution direct to consumers, whether it's a subscription or a newsletter or a podcast, whatever. Um, in terms of uh, what's going to happen with content creators on these platforms, I think these platforms are still going to need more content than ever. And so there's going to be ample opportunity for content studios to sell their stuff to these platforms. But I think the key is figuring out how can we create a licensing agreement where it seems more sustainable or mm -hmm. at least it's known, you know, mm -hmm. I'm only going to get this much money to license this kind of content over this amount of years, as opposed to kind of doing these traffic based partnerships, which really never worked out long term because anyone could change their algorithm yep. at any moment. Well, it's interesting, right? I mean, talking with Sarah Fisher, uh, Axios media reporter, she's at Sarah, S-A-R-A, -A, Fisher, F. I-S-C-H-E-R on Twitter, an awesome follow. Um, but you're in this business yourself, right, with Axios. And so as it relates to kind of this uh, direct-to-consumer, um, you know, gold rush, if you will, what trends do you see emerging that are potentially friendly? What's working for you? What, what are you guys talking about at Axios as you talk about this? Because you're on social, right? It, it's creating the brand awareness, but there's also, to your point, um, newsletters, subscriptions, and, and other tactics to kind of get to that DTC that's kind of the holy grail that everyone's talking about right now. How do you guys look at this at Axios? Yeah, I think you nailed it on the head, which is we view big social platforms at this point as marketing opportunities, not as strategic partners for monetization, mm -hmm. but they help us mod market uh, products and accrue users for things that we do think have direct opportunities for monetization. So for us, newsletters are big and, you know, we might use Facebook or Twitter or Google to increase our traffic to newsletter signups and we sell, you know, high CPM, high rated advertising on those newsletters. Uh, same thing for our podcasts. We have sponsorships for our podcasts and we might be able to lure people to those podcasts by using social media channels to mm -hmm. distribute the word about them. Um, I think those two are big opportunities for us. And then the third big thing is, you know, we have a show with HBO. That's a licensed yeah. partnership. And that is a long-term sustainable, you know, business opportunity for us, we think. Um as well as our live events business. That's been pretty good. Even though the pandemic has wiped out live events, we've been able to transition pretty well from the virtual world. And again, you know, the way that we get the word out about these live events is we put out advisories in our newsletters, of course, and on our podcast, but often on social media. And we want to encourage people to follow along on social media, to watch the feeds live on social media. And that engagement all helps us when we're trying to sell a sponsorship to an event. So it's really just about making sure you're using social media for marketing and building an audience, but not being overly reliant on it to make your money. Very good. I think at the top of the podcast, Sarah, I mentioned how uh, the whole reason I politely 
professionally stalked you to come on here was that so many people talked about you being a key source for them in terms of to start their day from from an industry perspective in terms of like kind of the media and content space for the access media trends. So I want you to take us through your day. How do you curate the subjects that you want to cover? Oh, um, it's an interesting question. I mean, my newsletter is once a week and I try to design it so that you only have to read one thing a week and it's about a seven minute read and that's all you need. So what I do is throughout the week, I publish things that are important and I save my cream of the crop for the newsletter, but I make sure the things I publish throughout the week are at least mentioned or incorporated into the newsletter. Sometimes I'll do a running list of mm -hmm. things that you should note. Sometimes I will put my lower down items will be combinations of things I wrote throughout the week. Uh, so that's kind of how I think about it. In terms of what I prioritize information wise, I try to think again in that lens of how do I make it easier for people to do their jobs? And so if I see a really smart trend that's emerging, I will try to cover the trend as opposed to an individual event within the trend. So mm -hmm. an example of that could be uh, last week, Disney said it was going to try to launch some sort of an international streaming uh, service. And I could have written an item just on what Disney was doing, but I thought the more valuable item for my audience was, let me just give you a short paragraph about what Disney's doing, a short paragraph about Viacom, who's planning the same thing, and a short paragraph about Discovery or whoever else that's also planning this, as well as a paragraph about why NBC is pulling out of this. And when I put those words together in a trend, it helps executives and people who don't have a lot of time but need this information understand a much more 10,000-foot view of what's going on as opposed to getting in the weeds of, you know, Bob Chapek at Disney had a Caesar salad <laughs> with this person, and then they cashed out a deal, and then he went to the pricing guy, and they decided this. Like, those details are incredibly important, but if you need to do your job, they might be too in the weeds, actually, to serve you well. Unless you're so high level that you're going to be meeting Bob Chapek for a lunch and you need to know his favorite salad, <laughs> that's a very small subset of people. I don't know that that kind of detail matters to the, you know, I don't want to say the mm -hmm. number, but the, you know, tens of thousands of people that subscribe to my newsletter, they just need to know the information to do their job. And so that's the lens I think about uh, how I put my stories together and how I put the newsletter together. So Sarah, how, how do you assess and measure um, the, the content that you're putting together in your newsletter? What's resonating? and what's not yeah well i mean obviously we have a subscriber number that we track mm -hmm. and we are pretty careful about making sure that that is a really engaged and authentic number we are constantly filtering out emails that are dead or emails that uh, aren't opening it a lot so that that number when we give it to an advertiser mm -hmm. they know that's a really highly engaged audience and to that end we obviously measure open rate and Axios's open rates are really high, especially compared to um, the industry standard, which is less than 25% opens. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some of our newsletters can be up to double that. And the reason being is like we create our products specifically for someone reading it in mobile uh, email. Mm -hmm. You know, the pictures render, the graphics and charts render to a specific mobile phone screen. The headlines are certain character limits so that we can have you understand concepts fast as you're scrolling. We keep things as short as possible. A lot of the articles I write 
they might be 800 words, but I get, I spend an hour figuring out how to condense that to 200 words so that you get exactly what you need. And so there's so much attention to detail about crafting this really beautiful mobile email newsletter experience that we think our engagement is really high. And that's how we measure the success of the newsletter. So how would you assess where Axos Media Trends is today and where do you personally want to take it? I mean, I think it's doing really well. I would love to walk you through numbers, but I don't know that I'm allowed to do that. But mm -hmm. it's definitely surpassed all of our expectations in the you know little over three years that we've been doing it. And as far as where, was we, where would we like to take it, I think, you know, we do split the newsletter. Half of it is about breaking new news so that you have a reason to open it on Tuesday morning. And then the other half is really smart analysis and charts. And I think that formula works really well. But of course, my goal is to always be better at doing both. So breaking more news and being even more strategic about the analysis that we do. And we've made some changes that I think have really helped. Like for one, we've designated areas where people within the newsroom can work together to bring even smarter analysis. During this pandemic, I've been working really closely with some of our science and health editors on understanding hmm. the psychology behind misinformation. Hmm. So that's like an area where we are building to get even stronger is working across the newsroom so that the analysis within the newsletter is really, really unique and sharp. Uh, another example of that is I've worked before with our transportation reporter on what is the future of out-of-home advertising and billboards when we're in driverless cars mm. and people don't have to look outside the windows? These are topics where other newsrooms sometimes are too big to have reporters collaborate that way. And we just want to be the best at doing that type of crossover journalism. So I think in the months coming up, you should expect to see even more of that sort of collaborative work. Well, I mean, it's interesting, Sarah, and, and, and kudos to you for what you've built because it's really hard. And to your point, making the content zing in a short amount of time and short word count is even harder. And uh, I'm kind of like the anti-scale guy. And it's probably because I've been beaten down by being in so many agency pitch meetings and people like, yeah, but what's your scale? Oh, 12 million, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you're, you're like, really? Um, uh, and, and so like your newsletter, right? I've had... 20 plus of the 30 people mentioned that they go to you as one of their go-tos on social media. And the value of the community that you've built is extraordinarily valuable. It's got a premium. It's, and that, that's kind of like the nirvana, right? It's, the, it's getting that community of, of people who you know are kind of opening and you have their trust and that's worth like 100x if just the general population, right, to, to get there. And I think... It's hard, right? Because at the end of the day, you're not the only one covering this. There's a lot of people covering it, but you do it extraordinarily well. And when you try to break down, like, what's the difference? It's sometimes it's just the quality's better, right? And and that's a hard concept for people to get. Um, and and I think it's something that we try to hammer home here quite a bit. So, I mean, when you look at that, like, this is a little um, navel gazing, but like, what is it that you think? that you're doing that's that's enabled you to rise to the top here within our industry? I actually think, well, thank you for saying that. I actually think it has way less to do with me and more or less to do with the environment that I'm in. Like 
I think all boats, uh, what's the saying that all boats rise and tide? Yeah, rise and tide raises all ships. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the the concept of all of our newsletters at Axios perform this well because we all leverage the same type of strategy together at the same time. So you know that you can go to Axios and you're going to find quality product. And that means that if you're somewhat interested in media, you're going to go to Axios and you'll say, you know what, I'll subscribe to their media newsletter because I know that their sports newsletter is really good. Mm-hmm. And so that's actually the key. It, the key is working across an ecosystem of really, really strong journalism. The other thing is we were founded by three people, Mike Allen, Jim Vandehei, and Roy Schwartz, who are truly the foremost experts in newsletter writing and monetization. Mike has been writing his daily newsletter for 14 years. Mm-hmm. This is what he knows how to do. And the little secrets I learn from him every single day, like that's what makes my newsletter good. He is brilliant. The smartest person I've ever met in my entire life. Wow. Especially when it comes to this. Yeah, other than my parents, of course. Um, and then when you take someone like Jim, who is the chief evangelist of a company and a brand, Jim is so smart at getting the buy-in of people all around the world to believe in Axios's mission and journalism. And that is what helps bring people to the newsletter more mm-hmm. than anything. I think about Jim when he goes on uh, TV to give political insights. He's so well-respected that people want to go to Axios and they want right. to subscribe to our newsletters. And then you think about somebody like Roy, who is our monetization guy. He is the most protective person of journalism ever. I mean, we're so – I feel so lucky to work for him. He's never going to let an ad run in my newsletter that cheapens – the experience of the quality. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, the quality and the experience is always good for our users. So like the mission and the experience of those three people and what they bring to the whole company, uh, that is ex- that is distilled in every single newsletter. And so while I appreciate you saying like, uh, what are you doing? You know, I'm doing as much as I can to write good, do good journalism and write good stories. But that is just one teeny little piece of the puzzle that I really can't, I can't take credit for like the other 90% of it because that's my bosses. Well, if you want to uh, follow Sarah and I highly recommend, I mean, I'm guessing most of you already are, but if you're not, go to axios.com slash newsletters and you can have your choice. You'll you'll see Sarah's media trends there. It's really easy interface to sign up for. Um, You can go there, but now we're going to turn the home stretch here and just go a little personal. And since you're on the top of our morning musts, what we call our morning musts charts of this audience, who's on yours? What e-newsletters get the hall pass into your daily email inbox, and who are some of your favorite social follows? Oh, well, my boss, Mike Allens, is by far, like, the most important thing I read every single day. And if you like media, he has a lot of really good media scoops and insights. Um, And he also has been my go-to, like I said, for, Mm -hmm. like, over a decade. And then there's a bunch of Axios newsletters. I mean, I subscribe to all of them, but if you like media, I highly uh, recommend also subscribing to our tech newsletter written by Ina Freak called Login and our deals newsletter written by Dan Primack called Prorata. Um, other newsletters out there, I love what Dylan Byers does at NBC News mm-hmm. with Byers Market. It's brilliant and he breaks a lot of news. I love what Brian Stelter writes every day for CNN. I don't know how he has the time to do what he does, but he's <laughs> incredible. I think that uh, there's so many like media and marketing newsletters out there. I don't even know where to begin, but um, I've been lately thinking about some of the ones that are focused on women and diversity that have been so critical to my news diet. 
Uh, there's a woman named Adriana Lacey who covers this type of stuff in a newsletter that she writes. I love following what Margaret Sullivan writes at the Washington Post. She doesn't have a newsletter, but her column, mm-hmm. uh, Weekly is Smart, Ben Smith's column at the New York Times, Weekly is really smart. Um, and then I get a lot of trade stuff, you know, like for me to be able to write a good story on what the dynamic is between Apple and Facebook, I got to read Ad Exchanger and Ad Weekend, mm-hmm. Ad Age and their newsletters, or for me to understand what's happening in Hollywood, I'm reading The Hollywood Reporter and Variety and mm-hmm. The Ankler. That's a great newsletter. So it really just kind of runs the gamut. But the number one, if I had to give a plug, would be to Mike. Very cool. You see how I like this? This is my poor man's curation. I just get get people on and talk about it. Are, are you a podcast woman? Do you like podcasts? Do you listen to I them? I do like podcasts. I'm a big daily listener. Okay. Big shout out to the New York Times. Love it. I love Axios' podcast, both Pro Rata and Axios Today. Um, I love Peter Kafka's podcast on Vox. That's a yep. media podcast. I like the journal um, from the Wall Street Journal. Those are, I'd say, my go-tos. Awesome. And then the home stretch here. So the bedstand book stack. What is Sarah Fisher reading right now? Oh, good question because I am not a TV person. I cover television as a business, but it's, <laughs> it's too um, much very for rare you that... to take home. Yeah. Come yeah, on, you have no said... Netflix binge? Come on, you. everyone no, has something. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I can't stand it, actually. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know how people have time in their life to, like, sit down on a couch and watch television because I'm always, like, I need to be vacuuming. I need to be doing something. Um, I'd say uh, the book stand, you know, I someone, someone uh, recommended to me, this is super old school, but um, How yeah, to Win Friends and Influence People. 1930s wow. yeah really is that old the dale school, carnegie that's, that's been something i'm rereading during the pandemic because i felt it to be really hard to figure out how do i develop like strong interpersonal relationships on zoom so that's been a super helpful read for me um i reread the artemis fowl series which was really fun before it came out on disney plus and then um you know, in Sumner Redstone's passing, I just started to read the Keech Hagee book hmm. on the Redstones. Um, so if you're interested in CBS Viacom and movies and all that, I think that's a good read. Um, and then, you know, on my pre-order list, there's two things that I haven't read yet, but I'm looking forward to reading. One is the new Margaret Sullivan book on local news. Mm-hmm. She's the Washington Post columnist I mentioned. And then Brian Stelter has a new book out called Hoax that's on Fox oh, News. Oh, yeah. It's so that's of sort of my, right yes, my... Um, my fun reads, my you know personal development reads, and then my work reads. That's what I'm reading. Well, we're going to end with, is there one tip you can pass along to me? Because God knows I could use help on how to win friends and influence people. So <laughs> any, any tips that you can give? Anything you've put into practice during the pandemic? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think give the me biggest one. one. Yeah, yeah. I think the biggest one is every time you're frustrated with someone, thinking in terms of like, what are all the things that they considered in making their decision that ultimately led them to do something that you disagreed with that you might not have even been considering or thinking about. And if you just take that moment to pause before you send the email or before you say begrudgingly, I'm not going to turn my video on the zoom because I'm too busy. Um, you know, think about the fact that somebody might have screaming kids in another room, but made the effort to find a babysitter so that they could get on the video with you like turn your video on, you know? So <laughs> I'm trying to um, think about those scenarios more as I enter like the virtual workforce. And it's been really helpful because there's no precedent set 
for when it's appropriate right. to turn a video on or not. And there's no precedent set about when it's appropriate to just get on the phone with someone versus not. But these are things that we now are trying to navigate and figure out. And so I'm trying to do that in a way that sustains it long term, because I don't think we're moving away from this virtual world anytime soon. I don't either. And I think, you know, uh, I, I do need to figure out where you got that beautiful piece of wall art. I have three mu musical daughters and, and uh, it's created a little mini mini conversation around our dinner table in advance of this. So Sarah Fisher, I, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule uh, to share your insights and your um, backstory on the Axios Media Trends and, and sharing with content studio execs across all different types. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Brand Story Inc. We'll be back next week with another conversation digging into the ways companies are becoming like media companies. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give me a follow on Twitter at underscore Jay Sharman and on LinkedIn.